From the Uncork Studios of Corkscrew Shores in sunny Southwest Florida, you're listening to another episode of M&M Uncorked. This is Astero's premier podcast for community news, upcoming events, relevant topics, and fascinating life stories from some of our very own Corkscrew Shores residents. Now, here's Dan Mountney and Frank Materko. Okay, everybody. Uh, glad you could join us again for uh, another episode of Eminem Uncorked here with uh, Frank Materko. And uh, Frank, how you been? Haven't talked to you in a couple of weeks. Doing great, Dan. And you're looking as perky as ever. I mean, if you got any younger looking, I'd be nervous. You know, guys don't usually want to be described as perky. So um, can you think of another adjective? Old? <laughs> oh, pot calling kettle black. Oh, well, look out. I go from one extreme to the other, Dan. Yeah. How's your winter been going? You, has it been a good season for you? Have you had much company? You said you said Julie's coming down, right? Uh, my daughter Julie is going to make an impromptu visit, uh, unbeknownst to me and my wife. She's coming in tonight for about a two or three day stay. Uh, offered to take uh, us out to dinner. I tried to book the most expensive place I could find. Arby's was full, <laughs> so I moved up the chain to some other location. So oh, I gave it a shot. Awesome. Tell, tell her to try Turtle Club. I hear that's nice and expensive. But what the listeners need to know is that she is your number one fan from her days of staying in Plymouth, Michigan, a.k.a. listening to you in your heyday on WDIV Channel 4 News. Anchorman, I might say. No, she's a sweetheart. Julie's awesome. Um, she adopted... She's, she claims to be, she wants to be, but we've got papers that prove otherwise. <laughs> she got her mother's good traits, that's for sure. That's correct. Uh, hey, let's talk about what's coming up. We're going to do a Frank's Corner here in just a little bit. We're going to um, do some news and information about the community. And when we have a pretty amazing guest with us today. Uh, so here, here's a clue, a little tease. When, when Nick Saban from the Alabama Crimson Tide wanted to instill more character into his team, he hired one of our residents to coach his players on how to have more character. And uh, her name is Doreen Lecter, and she lives right here in our community. And she has just the most amazing background. She's done this thing called mindsetting for the last 20 or 30 years. She's an author. She's a podcaster also. And um, she's a, just a brilliant uh, communicator and has this fascinating background and story that she's going to share with us. So this whole mindsetting thing, Frank, it's kind of like about self-talk. And, and you kind of, you are what you think, your, your thoughts, your thought life drives your behavior. So she's going to share some of this and how she applies that for the different companies and organizations um, around the country. What interested me in what you just said was you said that she had uh, Nick Saban uh, hired her to install character into the team. You know, we could use a little character in our team. This three-man team is really riding solo and lacking a little bit of character, so I've been told. Okay, well, we'll see. We can ask her how, how she can apply that for Eminem Uncorked. Um, hey, quick uh, <coughs> trivia question for you. Um, she mentioned the other day, I did a little pre-interview with her, and she said, you have a certain number of thoughts on any given day. And she told me the number. So that's my question to you, Frank. How many thoughts go through your brain in any given day? 155. <laughs> Are you serious? Well, I, I think a lot. <laughs> no, that's not a lot. Nothing comes of it. I the just average think. person is 70,000 thoughts a day. 
Really? So you're falling a little short there, Frank. Really? Well, I'm a slow thinker. <laughs> Apparently. Um, hey, let's move on and talk about some things going on in the community. We have an election coming up. There's no, really? Two, for our board of directors, there's two openings. There's nine people running. And the last day to vote is March 31st. We're recording this about a week ahead of the deadline. So we want to encourage people to, to vote, right? Absolutely. In fact, nine residents willing to come forward and do a very, very tough job of serving on our board. I mean, kudos to them. That is one tough job, and I wish them the best, really. So if you if you want to vote, and we hope everybody does, uh, there's an easy vote system that's online. Uh, so you get an email. Uh, if you have any questions, just call John or Cassie or Jackie up at the office. But you just click on the email, and you can vote right from the comfort of your own home. But you only get one vote per household, Frank. So if, if Donna votes, you will be locked out. You will not get to vote. That happens a lot in my household. <laughs> that might be a good I've thing. been locked out for 61 and a half years, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you're doing all right. Uh, we have a new management company coming. That's, that's big news. Uh, so Castle is on the way out, and First Service Residential is coming in. Um, how do you feel about that, Frank? Uh, hard to tell. I took a look at their website, and uh, it... It's like most websites you'd read that have that kind of a job description. So if they can come through with uh, 70% of what they say they do in other communities, and uh, if they uh, are willing to listen to what the residents' needs are and prioritize, I think they will uh, be okay. It's going to be a transition period. Those are tough. And it also depends on what kind of uh, position Castle leaves them with. There's a lot of unanswered things and things that haven't happened under Castle that were supposed to happen so that's going to be one gauntlet they'll have to pick up as a new uh, provider of our uh, services yeah transitions can be bumpy it was last time but i think we've hopefully learned a few lessons from that uh, dean mags uh, had that town hall meeting last week i thought that went pretty well uh, i thought the questions from the residents were very good very insightful very fair um, people didn't get carried away. I thought that, you know, they, they just asked really um, smart questions and, and the attitude was, was good. And it's going to require a lot of patience, I think, uh, for the next few weeks. But hopefully um, it will be relatively smooth. We'll find out. Uh, no doubt in my mind. And like I say, uh, I remember when Icon left and Castle walked in, there was a difficult transition period. I don't know how much of that was Icon's fault. I don't know how much of that was Castle's fault by not being prepared and responding properly. So hopefully our new uh, service provider will learn from those deficiencies and uh, not let them occur in our community. So we'll see. No, yeah, we'll find out. Hey, in the meantime, I want to mention uh, some of the staff at Captain's Club in particular. They've been hanging in there and working so hard under some difficult circumstances. Uh, they're very short-staffed right now. So you have Paul, who's just incredible, Paul Stevens. And then there's Sonny and uh, Hannah. And uh, in the back, we have Brad and Mark in the kitchen. And so those five people have been keeping this thing running for the last couple of weeks, and hopefully they'll keep it going for an, another couple of weeks and until we transition to the new staff. So just wanted to give a public congrats and thank you to those guys for working so hard. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I believe what I heard the board mention that one of the biggest deficiencies they've had with Castle is that Castle, at least in the opinion of the employees that have stayed back, are not getting the adequate support from upper management in Castle. And I find that in many companies where problems exist down in the rank and file, it's because top management is not providing 
either the training or the support or whatever, it usually starts at top management. So again, I would encourage our new customer provider uh, to make sure they support their people down here in the rank and file. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, let's uh, let's uh, turn the page and talk about Frank's Corner. What do you have today? Well, uh, surprisingly, I've done a lot of homework since our last <laughs> one and not paid well to do this. But anyway, I reached out to the Estero Board of Realtors and I said, could you folks give me some information about what's going on in the past 365 days in Corkscrew Shores with regard to house sales and that? And uh, with the assistance of uh, one of the residents here, uh, John Schroeder, uh, I got the following information. This is over the past 365 days within Corkscrew Shores, Corkscrew Shores alone, there have been 62 homes sold, which wow. is about almost 10% of the number of homes in this community. That's a lot of turnover. That's a huge, yeah. The only other market uh, I find that is uh, hotter than this one is Tampa, Florida. Tampa, Florida is number one in Florida in terms of selling homes and homes for sale and quick moving homes. You know, they go on the market and they're gone the day before they go on the market. But Corsco Shores has done pretty well. For example, what do you think was the highest priced home sold in the last 365 days in Corkscrew Shores? How much do you think that home sold for? 1.6 million. Spot on. Wow, <laughs> you do good. I, I pay attention 1. to the 1.6 million. Now, on the other side of the coin, what was the lowest price home that sold in the past 365 days within Corkscrew Shores? How much do you think that home sold for? Hmm. There was, uh, I'm, I'm going to say, gosh, that's a little trick here. Um, Five ninety nine. A little high, Dan. It's three hundred and sixty thousand. So the range, wow. the range is three sixty to one point six million. But interesting enough, the average price of the home sold on the water was nine hundred forty one thousand, versus the average price of the home sold off the water of six hundred thirty thousand. So you can see about a three hundred thousand dollar differential between being on the water versus off the water. For what it's worth. You're just saying that because you're on the water and I'm off the water. You're rubbing it in a little bit, aren't you? Okay. You too, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on, let's let's not let sarcasm get involved into this discussion. Finally, the there's currently five active listings in Corkscrew Shores, and there are currently eight listings pending closure in Corkscrew Shores. And the average price of the homes pending closing are nine hundred and fifty-nine thousand dollars. So you can see. It's quite a uh, quite a wide range there, but that's still a, a pretty good market right here in Corsicu Shores. No, it's it's red hot, and it's it's really a double edged sword because I watch the, uh, the values of our homes go up, and it's kind of fun. It's, you see some of these comps, you know, oh gosh, maybe my house is is worth that now, and that's nice. It's more equity, and and who doesn't want that? Um, but I worry about the younger people who are moving to Florida, moving to Southwest Florida, where, how are they possibly going to buy a house with these kinds of prices? How are they going to rent? Because the rental market's going right. way up. So it's, it's not necessarily a good thing for everybody. And talking to John a little bit on the side, uh, I said, well, what, what do you think's going to, you think it'll slow down? He says, I, he doesn't see anything in the near term where this market's slowing down in terms of sales and that. And I asked, well, what's the number one reason people tell you they're selling? And he said, by and large, uh, he says, it's people wanting to take advantage of getting the maximum equity out of their home. And that's what they're getting because almost all the homes that he has run that are being listed get at least the list price and many of them get higher than list. So people want to take that equity and run. Now, where they go after that, 
And that's you're the thing. That's the thing. How are you going right. to buy anything? That, right. you know, unless you're significantly downsizing or moving to another part of the country that's not as high. Um, but for me, I mean, I, I love it here. I know you love it here. Right. Jim, you love it here, right? So, you know, where are you going to go? Yep. We can't recreate this wonderful community. So that's, uh, that's my uh, input from Frank's Corner uh, for this month. All right. Thank you, Frank. You're welcome. Well, we are uh, delighted to be joined right now with uh, Doreen Leckler, and um, she's one of our newer residents to Corkscrew Shores. And um, Doreen, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank it's you so much for here. joining us. This is this is awesome. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had three people within the space of two days say, you need to interview Doreen on your podcast. <laughs> and and I, I said, well, why? And they said, well, you, you got to talk to her. She has just a fascinating life story and um you've gone through so many things and this whole mindsetting piece which um, we mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast but i'm fascinated by that the whole idea of mind over matter over body kind of thing so i'm going to get into that a little bit um but i want to first of all just find out a little bit more about about you and um uh, tell us when you moved here um you're married, your husband, just a little background about, about yourself and coming to Corkshire Shores. Sure, yeah. Well, um, first of all, thank you for asking me to, and, and for uh, trusting the th those three individuals, whoever they may have been. Um, we're, we just love it here. We've been here now um, exactly uh, one year and one week. We moved here a year ago last week. Um, we are the house, everybody seems to know the minute I say, when you come into the um, main gates and you turn to the left, we are the first house on the left and everyone says, oh, the model home, I've been through that home. And the Summerwood, I remember. That's I've it, that's our home. We bought the whole thing, like the furniture and all of it. So mm. <laughs> I think a lot of people kind of, you know, can visualize our, our day to day in, in our home. <laughs> but um, we came from uh, South Central Pennsylvania, the Harrisburg, Mechanicsburg, you mm -hmm. know, Hershey area. Um, my husband, Brent, uh, still works. He works with ADT. He's their lead architect, and he works here from home. Uh, we have one son, Nick, and Nick is 21 years old. He goes to Savannah College of Art and Design for film and screenwriting. Wow. So Does I'm, he do podcasts? Um, not yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> could not you somehow? Yet. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's our story. We just love being here. We're here full time, and... Um, uh, my brother just is actually the one that kind of got us here to this area. He he built a house a few years ago um, off of Immokalee, you know, as a part-time resident. And he just retired uh, from um, his work in January. So he's here full-time. Oh, that's so, nice. It's, it's always nice. good to have some family it down is. here. And you like it so far after mm -hmm. the one year? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Good. Well, we're, yeah. we're glad you could be with us. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier, you've had all this success as a speaker and an author and um, someone who's in, really been in the business of helping uh, individuals and groups of people. But let's go back farther, um, because from what I understand, your, your whole professional career in some ways began when you were a college dropout. <laughs> dropout <laughs> Most yeah. people don't get launched in life that way, but talk, yeah. talk about that yeah. and how you went through that process and what you became after that. Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, so I graduated high school in 1978, and um, I wanted to go to an all-girls school, if you can believe that, because I just thought it might be safer for me. I didn't trust myself necessarily. <laughs> so uh, I went to Washington, D.C. area. Uh, I went to Marymount, which uh, at that time in Arlington, Virginia, Marymount was an all-girl Catholic college. Now mm -hmm. it's a co-ed university. 
But um, I believe probably because of it being an all-girls school, uh, my first few weeks there, the first month that I was there on campus, there was um, a modeling agency that came scouting on the campus. And they were going to be there for a couple of days, and each floor of each dormitory was scheduled for a certain time to meet with these people. So everyone on my floor went, you know, short, tall, <laughs> big, fat, didn't matter. We all went. <laughs> and, um, and it just so happened that I was one of three people on the campus that they offered a contract to. Um, I was still 17. Wow. And so my parents had to sign. They said, uh, just don't do anything naughty. And, um, you know, at, but school was very, very important. And I was on an academic scholarship. So I, I, I did sign with them. And I started doing work locally, a lot of newspaper print work for the Heck Company, mm -hmm. and Woodward and Lothrop, and, uh, you know, uh, Georgetown Leather Design, all these stores kind of in the Baltimore, D.C. area. And uh, I did that for about a year and a half, and then I had uh, a, the opportunity to go to Europe. Wow. So my parents, um, I, I pleaded with them, and they gave me a, a one-semester leave of absence. And um, that turned into seven years of um, modeling full-time around the world. So I got to live and work in Paris and in Hamburg and in Tokyo. Um, I worked in New York for many years. I had an apartment in New York and in Washington, D.C., and I'd go back and forth working you know, with clients. And I did that for about seven years. Now, that, that, I mean, that sounds incredibly exciting with the travel and so forth. And most people think of modeling as being this very glamorous career <laughs> but I, I suspect there's a lot of hard work uh, involved hard. in that yeah. tell, tell us about that how did you like that well you know you're doing furs in the middle of the summer <laughs> and sweating <laughs> like a dog you know and you're doing um bathing suits shoots you know in, in the winter and it, it, it is a lot of hard work i mean uh, you know i had to come home at the end of the day as much as i loved it um i came home at the end of the day and your body just aches you know the positions you got to hold and stay in and, and whatnot but i loved i loved the creative process i liked actually working on the other side of the camera with um, the photographers and the hmm. concept people um but after about seven years you know it, it, this was not my calling uh, and, and I really do think when you get into professions like music or um, acting or modeling, it, you have to really love it. It has to be your, you know, your passion, something that you always felt called to do. And it wasn't for me as, as much as I loved. I, you know, I liked being on the set. I could not stand spending the day talking to models. It just was so hard. And I, I just felt like there was something more for me. And huh. um and so I, I, you know, after seven years, I went back to D.C. and I finished my college education. I went on to seminary. Um, oh, my goodness. That, that's an unusual path from modeling to seminary. <laughs> well, while I was living that lifestyle, you know, this is back in the, you know, I mean, we're talking about 40 years ago. Wow. So that was back in the um, Studio 54 days. And it was a wild and crazy mm -hmm. life. Yeah. And um, it was also during the kind of the onset of the AIDS um, crisis. Hmm. And so, so many of my friends and um, some of the gentlemen that I modeled with, you know, in, the, in my mm. uh, pictures, many of them were dying and not knowing why. And there were, you know, so it was, I found for me personally, my life was just getting into a downward spiral. And it was actually in New York City that I heard about a group called Models for Christ. 
<laughs> and I, I thought, well, that's interesting. And I went and I happened to see these people who were big name people. And I uh, was like, wow, I, I just thought Christians were nerds. So it was a very interesting time for me. But anyway, it, it really changed my life. I mean, I did a 180. And I went from making, um, you know, as a 23, 24-year-old, making $150 an hour to making $8 an hour working in D.C. with, um, you know, youth in the housing projects. So wow. big can, change. Can you say what some of the big names were that you heard were being taught around that Models for Christ area? Are you allowed to say the names? Or? I don't know if I, I guess I... I mean, any stars that I would know? Well, one I don't of, mean people that are friends. You, I'm just people. sure. Well, one woman I used to work with actually a lot. On um, you may have heard of her. She was on a lot of covers, and then she became an actress. Was Renee Rousseau? Oh, oh sure. Oh yeah. Her? Oh yeah. yeah. And I remember we used, we were booked together often for. Uh, and I did a lot of print work. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm. I'm just shy of five eight. So I'm considered too small for mm-hmm. modeling. Wow. I mean, they wanted five nine and taller. But so a lot of the work that I did was print. And this was before the days of Victoria's Secret and boob jobs. Am I allowed to say that on there? Yes, you yeah. can say that <laughs> It was before all that era. So um, so I did a lot of things like um, bathing suits and lingerie oh, and, and department store kinds of ads, you know, for okay. circulars and print work. But anyway, she and I worked a lot with Woodward and Lothrop, which was a store. We, we were shooting in New York, but it was a store located in D.C. area mm-hmm. and uh I'd come in and she'd be sitting there in the dressing room reading the Bible. And I'd think, well, that's weird. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's a weird thing until later, you know, um, she was one. So you, you, you mentioned that you, you went uh, 180 degrees from where you were in life professionally and personally, it sounds, Mm -hmm. and, and made this, this sharp um, turn in your life to working for nonprofits. And then this whole mind setting thing. Talk, talk about that during and what is that? What did you do with that? Just sure. fill us in. Well, um, for about 12 years, I worked in the nonprofit industry, kind of working my way up the ladder. And um, I, I found that it, even with the different groups, I, I would get a little bit frustrated. Um, certainly, you don't go into nonprofit for the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you really go in for a heart and passion to help people. And But I, I tended to see, in my experience, that the minute... Um, you know, people would age out of a program or for whatever reason they weren't kind of within our sphere of influence, that there wasn't a lot of life change. I mean, you know, we would work hard to get things for people so we could give things to people that they could take, but but it wasn't really making a life change. And that was really frustrating to me. And um, it was right about that time I was um, living in Denver, Colorado. I had just met Brent and we had just gotten married. And I actually participated in a seminar um, from a, a group called the Pacific Institute out of Seattle. And what they did is they went into companies and taught about how the mind works and how to get unstuck and how to build beliefs um, congruent with your goals so that you can actually sustain the results that you want. And I just thought, wow, this is great. This is fascinating. And it really put together a process that um, around the psychology that I learned when I was in seminary, because my degree in seminary was theology and pastoral counseling. But this really was just a very sequential process that took people through to help them understand how their mind works, um, what their thinking patterns were, how those patterns were holding them back from unleashing more of the potential that they possess. 
And when I experienced that, I went, wow, boom, this is it. This is what I want to be a part of. This is what's going to change people's lives. And, and then you went on to do that mm-hmm. with a lot of companies and organizations yeah. and sports teams. Mm-hmm. So talk about some of the, the, the organizations that you worked with. Well, um, we would, we would uh, as consultants, we would kind of group together, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to handle a client. But, you know, some of my clients were t- uh, Toyota Motor Sales. And uh, at the time they were in Torrance, uh, California, I was flying out there quite a bit. Um, Schneider National Trucking was a client of mine. The National Association of Realtors uh, was a client. Um, it did a lot in the automotive industry. Um, Sheehy Auto Group is a big, um, you know, they have 22 stores on the East Coast. And so we worked uh, a lot um, in healthcare. Uh, we worked with Nick Saban. Um, this is back in 2006, but, but in his organization, um, in Alabama, and they went on to win four to five consecutive uh, um, game, you know, bowls after that. Wow. Well, let's, let's pause there for just a second. So Nick Saban calls you up or calls your company up uh-huh. and invites you in. What, what, what did he ask you to do and how did you do it? Well, interestingly, he wasn't so much concerned about winning and performance. He was concerned about character, which was neat. That was really neat. Yeah. He really was interested in the character of his of his um, team, and and creating a sense of team as opposed to sort of that one upmanship, you know. And I, I'm going to be the best, and so that was that was his goal, which was um, unique. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's something to be applauded, and it clearly paid off. Not mm-hmm. just in building character, but also building a great winning team and tradition and and legacy yeah. um, uh, for his team. What did you, um, when you're working with these organizations, what what does that look like specifically? So somebody sets a goal and, and give me some examples of goals. You, you said it could be weight loss. Uh, mm. uh, maybe people have forgiveness issues. I, whatever it is, how do you work with those people to change the way they process that information to have a more positive outcome? Right. Well, you know, um, I do listen to your podcast, and I listened to Mona being here last mm-hmm. time. So she works with individuals kind of on an on a individual level. Um, what we did was we were, our, our business model was business to business. So we would go into an organization, and we would measure their culture in terms of how they think. Um, and so we would be able to identify some of the major themes in terms of their thinking around the organization. And when you do that, it becomes very clear. You can see what's holding people back. So it was first really about measuring the culture. And then we would come in and we would teach them this, you know, the, the science of mindsetting. You know, the, the, the information that we have in and around the neurosciences about how the mind works and how beliefs are built and how we get stuck in comfort zones and becoming aware of our self-talk. And when you give people that kind of knowledge, it's so freeing because most people don't realize, you know, we all have characteristics and things that we'd love to grow and change in. I mean, most of us do. And I don't think any of us feels that we've we're arrived, you know. Um, and so when you give them that knowledge for how to change, it's just so powerful. Because most people feel that they're managed by their mind rather than knowing that they can manage their mind. And you give them the tools to do that. And boy, I mean, you can just, uh, you know, unleash greater levels of potential in any area of your life. And most of us, I would think, 
don't appreciate the capacity of what our minds are capable mm. of. We have these thoughts, and Frank and I were joking earlier, I think you told me 70,000 thoughts a day. Yeah. That, <laughs> that is literally mind-boggling. So how do you how do you harness those thoughts? How do you you know make your 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 brain kind of uh, do what you want it to do for a desired outcome? Well, it takes I would say conscious um, conscious intention and constant attention to take every thought captive. So the first step is awareness. Mm-hmm. You know we really don't live most of our day probably about 80 to 90% of our day, we live subconsciously. You know, you don't get up and unless you've had an injury, you don't think about how you get out of bed. You don't inform each muscle in your body to get yourself. You just do it by habit. So most of our day is is subconscious habits of behavior. And so uh, helping people, first of all, have the picture of what it is they want to change, you know, and then having an honest assessment of their current reality. So what's the picture? What's the end result? What does it look like? Is, is it vivid? Most people don't attain their goals because they don't have a crystal clear picture of what that end result looks like. It's kind of vague, you know. Mm-hmm. But when you, when you have a really crystal clear picture of the end result and an honest assessment of where you are right now, then the question becomes and the discovery becomes, What's holding me back? What's holding me back? And oftentimes when we ask that question, it's not the root. It's, it's usually, you know, it's a surface level um, answer. Mm-hmm. And then you want to ask yourself, well, why do I think that? You know, it's sort of that peeling back the onion and keep asking, well, why do I think that? Well, why do I th- think that? Well, where did that first originate? Um, permission to give a story? Yeah, absolutely, please. So we were working, I won't mention his name, but we were working with um, a gentleman who um, was, is a, a very well-known cyclist in the cycling world. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to, he was the domestique um, for, for one of the premier racing uh, groups in the, in the world. And the domestique is the person who rides out in front to catch the wind so that the, the celebrity rider can ride in the slipstream, if you will. Huh. So being a domestique, you have to be a pretty formidable athlete, you know, to take that on. Well, anyway, he had kind of reached a level of peak performance, but he was very frustrated and he felt like he could do more. Well, his coach changed up some of his routine and that didn't seem to work. Um, The nutritionist changed up some things that didn't seem to do it. They did all kinds of testing on him for lung capacity and yada, yada, and that all seemed to be fine. And so um, my, my dear friend and colleague, she said, uh, you know, do you mind if I'm your head coach, meaning head like what's above your shoulders, mm-hmm. <laughs> your head coach? She said, sure, why not? So she said, well, what seems to be the issue? And he says, well, I'm not, I'm just not a climber. I'm just not a climber. And, he, and she said, well, tell me a little bit more about that. And he said, well, every time I'm ready to ascent, you know, I just, my, my lungs kind of get, my, the muscles around my lungs kind of, you know, contract and I can't breathe and I get, you know, and, and he's going on with all these symptoms. And she said, well, when did you first know that you weren't a climber? Hmm. Well, he thought about it for a little bit. He had self-reflect. And all of a sudden he starts sharing about the very first time he learned he wasn't a climber. Well, he grew up in North Carolina, you know, cycling in the hills there, but he would go out with his family 
he was about 10, 12 years old, out to Colorado. Now I'm, you know, I lived there for 12 years. That's where I met Brent and we got married. But, you know, so they, you know, you're talking about when you get up into those hills, mountains, 14,000 square uh, uh, elevation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Feet above sea level. So here's this 10 year old kid and he's, he doesn't realize it, but he's got altitude sickness and he's feeling like bunk (laughs) and he can't breathe and he's thrown up. And his dad turns to him and says, don't worry, son, you're just not a climber. Boom. He got it. (laughs) You know, he, 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 he sanctioned it without realizing it. He got that belief in his head. I'm just not a climber. And on top of that, he had all the physical symptoms to agree with him that I'm not a climber. And every summer when they would go out to Colorado and they would bike, it was the same thing. He would have altitude sickness. So how did this affect his performance? Unlocking that key, how did that affect his performance on the cycling circuit? Right. So every time he would see a mountain, he would tell himself, oh, well, here we go again. I'm not a climber. I'm not a Mm -hmm. climber. And when we worked with him and helped him realize that he had far more potential than what he was releasing um, and that that belief was given to him by his father uh, and he was able to change. We worked with him to help change, create new beliefs that became more dominant than the one he had been holding for, you know, decades. Um, He just, his performance really soared. So... Um, so this is the kind of thing that holds any of us back. So absolutely. you have the, these negative thoughts that, that are that, that come from God knows where in mm-hmm. our earlier life. We right. kind of embrace those. We fall into these habits. And then you come along, or people like you, and you you unlock that somehow. And and then what? So that's the first part. But how do you work with them to right. take it to the next level? Well, then we... So once they realize sort of the lie, if you will, I'm putting... Air quotes here. <laughs> people can't see that on a podcast. Um, but once people are can identify the lie or or what it is that the belief that's holding them back, then we teach them how to create new beliefs in the mind, how to re- retrain the brain, or um, the Bible calls it being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we teach an actual process of how how to build beliefs, and it's essentially through creating proper affirmations. And then how to imprint that into the brain so it becomes more dominant than the belief that you've been living from. That is absolutely fascinating. And mm-hmm. um, and I'm, I'm just interested in this just personally. I, there's so much more I'd like to learn about that. But as you and I talked the other day, uh, you are in the unfortunate position right now of having to apply some of what you preach and teach in your own life because of your health issues, mm-hmm. some very serious health issues. Um, do you mind sharing some of that, Doreen? No, I, I don't. Um, uh, no, well, in 2006, I was 45. My son was going into kindergarten. He was five years old, and I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which was interesting because it wasn't in my family. I was fit, thin, exercised. I mean, it mm-hmm. just, I didn't fit any of the criteria other than the fact that we had moved to Pennsylvania, and I was down the road from Three Mile Island. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, um, but I was, I was very fortunate in that it was, you know, stage one. It was early. It was not aggressive. It was, they got everything, and I didn't even need chemo. So it was a huge surprise two and a half years later in 2009 um, where they were diagnosing me now with stage four uh, cancer. And mm-hmm. I went to Hopkins, Sloan Kettering in New York, uh, St. Joe's, and they all gave me 
about 18 months to live. Uh, my son was in second grade, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I, I had already, um, and, and I happened to believe in God, and I had given my life to God, um, you know, a decade earlier. And so I remember sitting in the kitchen, no, mind you, I teach goal setting and mindset. So I'm sitting in the kitchen one morning and I, I'm praying. <laughs> and I just basically, I didn't ask why, I didn't ask to be healed. I basically just said, you know, God, I trust you. I know you'll take care of my husband, Brent. I know you'll take care of Nick. I'm good either way, but I just need to know how should I be thinking? Should I goal set to live Mm. or do I goal set to leave? Because they're different mindsets that bring about different courses of action. And the problem I find, I've done so much coaching with people with with cancer, is um, most people, they hope and pray one thing, healing, Mm -hmm. but they talk about and dwell on the other constantly. And you have to be so careful about the thoughts that you ruminate on because we're teleological in nature. What does that mean? We, we, we're target driven. We move toward what we think about. So uh, most created things in, in the world, um, they, they operate by instinct cycles and seasons. Human beings are uniquely designed, I believe, by God. <laughs> But we're uniquely designed among all other living things with forethought. Um, we have the, this it, cognitive capacity to plan, evaluate, uh, analyze, decide. And so when we have a picture in our mind, we move toward what we think about. And so it's really essential that we take every thought captive and make sure we're thinking the right things. And so when I'm talking to people with cancer, I'll say, um, well, I won't go to cancer support groups personally because my experience as a speaker is um, they go around the room and everybody talks about what? Their cancer. They even use possessive words, my cancer. And I'll say, don't, don't possess. Be careful about how you speak. Don't possess that. That's not, you don't want that to belong to you. It's not yours. That, that's not how you were designed. So um, at any rate, back to the story, I, I wound up actually, um, they gave me 18 months before cancer would be throughout my body. And um, I had this, this prayer, how should I be thinking? Is this, is this you taking me out? <laughs> you know, um, Or am I to fight this thing? And I had a very, very profound experience that morning in my kitchen. And I'm not one where God just, God told me this, God, I'm not that, although I, would love living that way, but um, but I had an experience where I, I, I just felt it so deeply where um, God said, I'm not the God of cancer, I'm the God of life. I always seek to save. And so I knew in that moment that this was not um, about me. This was not God's way of saying, you have no more purpose on this planet. Uh, I had an enemy that I was going to fight, and I did. and and. Um, I, for four months, because I was not symptomatic, I wasn't in a lot of pain or anything. They didn't want to start me on chemo. So that gave me a lot of time to get educated, which was good uh, for me in terms of cancer and nutrition and a lot of alternative things that I could do. Um, 
but it also gave me four months to really begin to write a lot of affirmations and build a picture in my mind that I am healed. Not I can be healed or I will be healed, but I am healed. When, when, you're, when you're creating new beliefs, you, you speak the end result as if it's happened now. And you've had um, 10 years of good health, right? Since yeah. this moment? Well, yes. I, um, in, I went back for scans uh, after four months, and they couldn't find any cancer anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the case for eight years. And then in 2017, it came back again. And so since then, I haven't had that same miraculous, you know, healing. Um, I have been having to work at it, you know, with different modalities and whatnot. And since I've moved here, I've had to, you know, find new people to work with. But I'm doing it every day. <laughs> so let me understand. You don't, you've never been on any treatment program other than the chemo you talked about. So... You don't really take any medication or anything like oh, that. Oh no, I take medication. I oh, don't okay. do. I I don't do intravenous chemo. Oh, I got you. And okay. I won't do it. I got you. But I'm you doing do, other. You do things. Types. Well, well I should say people do. I mean, th th some yeah. of this is controversial. People sure. make many different decisions. You yeah. have to do what you Absolutely. believe is right for you. And and understand too, we're talking about stage four. You know, stage four, mm -hmm. um, which is different. And and there just isn't a uh, research out there for. For stage four breast cancer, that intravenous chemo is efficacious. It, you know, it just prolongs your life with a quality of life I'd prefer not to experience. Right, so, right. but where are you during during right now in, in in your own mind as you're battling this illness? Um, yeah. what, what, what what is your thought life like? Right. How are you setting your mind to deal with this illness? Well, it's. I mean, I'm not gonna. Um, sugar-coated it's hard I mean you know I've been teaching mindsetting for 20 years I, I'm deeply you know immersed in it and I understand it but I will say you know since this 2017 what's that now five years mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of getting sick of it <laughs> and 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 a lot of the alternative stuff that we're doing it's not covered by insurance I mean we have gone through so much of you know um, and so I, I, it's hard. I have, to, I have to work really hard with my mindset not to get frustrated and, um, uh, you know, when I do, I just start to take out my affirmations again. And I see, I'll sit and visualize myself um, and the cells of, of my body being cleaned and washed. And, and I profess all kinds of affirmations that I've created around my health to put my mindset set in the right spot and you are going through this day by day mm -hmm. and and as you do i'm sure you're aware that so many other people are in the same battle or they have similar <laughs> yeah. things that right. are really really challenging right um so what have you learned doreen that you would suggest recommend to other people who are in difficulty right now mm. <laughs> boy where do you start well, you know, everybody's different and everybody's story is different. Yeah. And I, I, I learned that interestingly, um, kind of the hard way. I, I kind of assumed that um, it was my parents' generation that, that you know, uh, hook, line, and sinker would buy into everything the doctor said, you know, and but people my age would be, you know, more open. And, mm -hmm. and I found out that's not really true. Everybody is very different. And so... 
Um, I tried to be very, I tried to listen and to be very respectful with where people are and to encourage them. Um, because of my miraculous healing in 2009, I, I started writing, I was writing a blog while I was going through this because I knew that I could not keep talking about my current reality to everybody who asked, all these beautiful well-wishers. I knew I had to be very, um, I had to be really strong about keeping my the end result picture of healing and that you can't do that when you're always talking about your current reality and and we teach that in companies you know and with sports teams are you talking about the problem your current reality or are you talking about the vision the end result so i knew that people wanted to know and i suggest this um you know in in, in light of your question i i actually suggest this to other individuals when you're going through hard things don't keep talking about your current reality. Hold the picture of the end result. What does it look like without the problem? And try to hold that picture. Knowing that you will have people who are lovely well-wishers who want to know. So I would recommend that you have one point person or start a blog so that you can put it out there once. And if people want to hear and know what's going on, great. But you have to keep a vivid, vivid picture of that end result in mind. And you can't keep doing that if you're always talking about your current reality. Hmm. Well, um, I, I can't thank you enough for coming in today and, and sharing your, your background and experience. And uh, I know these kinds of conversations uh, benefit other people. And um, I just know that Frank and Jim and I, we, we, we wish you great health. Oh, thank you. And, um, and uh, I have it. You you I have it. You claim it. I, I look how I mean. You look. Fan, I wish. I wish this was video that people could see. I mean, you you look healthy. You you radiate joy. She actually looks better than I do, which is <laughs> very. <laughs> that's a low bar. Disconcerting to me. We normally don't like to do that, but she did it in this case. Yeah. Anyway, we're grateful. Uh, thanks again for coming in, Doreen. Thank and, you for uh, having. But before if, she yeah, leaves, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. As a token of our appreciation of you taking time out of your busy schedule and coming in to talk to us. I want to present you with a small memento of this visit. And what better than not one, but two boxes of M&M candies. That's right. Out of my own personal fund, he hasn't kicked in a dime. Oh, he's reminding me. But that's for you to share with your husband or whoever else. And when you're trying to see that box, think of how cheap are these people. <laughs> or that you're trying to kill me with sugar, right? <laughs> I didn't say you could eat them. Somebody I, I know, I know. Thank you very much. Beautiful boxes. Right. Thanks again, Doreen. Thanks for having me. Wasn't that interesting, Frank? Uh, I just learned so much from Doreen. She's a very, very excellent speaker, and I had some wonderful ideas that when I was doing consulting, I wish I had her uh, on my team to help set the mind straight on a lot of the customers I was working with. Well, what I think what these kinds of interviews do is it, it's, uh, it provokes thought. It, it kind of challenges you know, how you think about things. And she gave me a lot to think about, and hopefully for our audience, a lot to think about. Did want to mention a couple of websites that Doreen has. Uh, if you want more information uh, or if you want to contact her, um, she has two websites. One is called Destiny Makers. Destiny makers plural.org 
Uh, you can also listen to our podcast through that. Um, and then the other website is simply DoreenLeckler.com. Leckler is spelled L-E-C-H-E-L-E-R. L-E-C-H-E-L-E-R. DoreenLeckler.com for more information on Doreen, mindsetting, and um, just reach out to her. And if you see her in the neighborhood, I mean, just um, she's just a delightful human, and it was just a, a pleasure and an honor to meet her, and I'm so grateful for her time today. Did want to mention, Frank, some upcoming episodes that we're, we're working on. Uh, our extensive research department is trying to um, uh, work things out with uh, doing some interviews, pre-interviews with different folks. We've had so many people recommend um, interviews to us and uh, people that we can profile. Um, you had a couple, and we don't want to get into it now, right? Can't do it. No, we're still under contract negotiations. Uh, some people want uh, bags of M&Ms as their, uh, <laughs> as their uh, subsidy. Other people just want boxes. So we're trying to lock into a set fee that we can p- provide these people. But uh, I know you are doing the field work for us. You've gone out and got some great people so far. And I look to you to go even beyond this in the future, even greater interview people. That's what I like. Well, we have about 1,300 people living in the community, maybe 1,500. So we have a lot of stories to tell. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes. But we always welcome. Anybody has an idea, suggestion, please let Frank or I know, and uh, we'd love to pursue that. So uh, that's our time for today. We went a little bit longer than usual, but uh, we're grateful for those of you who are still hanging with us. And uh, thank you for your time. It's, it's a privilege and an honor to, to have you uh, tune in to us. And feel free to pass on the link to someone else or check out Spotify for past episodes as well. So once again, thanks to, to Jim and my buddy Frank. And uh, just so grateful for you guys and, uh, and to you, the audience, for uh, joining us for this episode of Eminem on Court. <laughs>